Got your Bibles with you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 9, uh, just a few verses down from where we were last week with the transfiguration. Uh, that is very much in view in what happens in the rest of Mark chapter 9. So we're going to be in verse 30, and we're going to read a couple different uh, stories. And one of the things you realize when you read Mark is that the subtitles of every section in Mark doesn't mean that they're all individual sections, but they all flow together uh, to make one point. And so reading from Mark chapter 9, verse 30 uh, to 41, hear the word of the Lord for you, his church, this morning. And they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But the disciples did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and it's a light unto our path. So I pray by it this morning that you would comfort us, that you would challenge us, that you would change us and transform us. Lord, come and open our hearts to receive your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, some of y'all know I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, love Lord of the Rings. And uh, the, the general story of Lord of the Rings, for those of you who have never seen it before, which if you've been living under a rock for this many years, I would highly suggest you go watch this movie. Uh, but the general gist of the Lord of the Rings is there is this one ring that is powerful that is used to control all of this land called Middle-earth. And it's been controlled by darkness for so long, but at the beginning of the story, the ring falls into the hands of the good. And so there's this scene early on in the story where they're at this big council, and they're trying to figure out what are they going to do with this ring now that they have it. And there's some members of this council that say, well, we have the ring now. We should just use it, right? We have the ring that's been used to oppress Middle Earth for thousands and thousands of years. We have the ring, so why don't we use it to defeat the darkness and overcome? Finally, we have the power. Let's use it. But the ring always, when you put it on, corrupts the wearer. And so they realized pretty quickly that if we were to actually use the ring, we would be corrupting themselves. And so this council discusses what they're going to do with the ring, and eventually what they're going to do is they're going to take the ring and they're going to go destroy it in a volcano, but somebody has to carry it. And so the whole journey 
with the ring becomes the center of the story. But what the author uses this scene to show uh, is that it is not the royalty at this council who ends up getting picked to carry the ring. And it's not the most powerful wizard who is at this council who's picked to carry the ring. It's a hobbit, a little short hobbit named Frodo from the Shire. And the Shire, if you look at a map of Middle-earth, is on the margins of Middle-earth. It is a simple, humble place out on the margins. And what the author is trying to show is that the salvation of Middle-earth is not going to come from the center of power. The salvation of Middle-earth is actually going to come from the margins. It's going to come from the margins. And I think that's an interesting idea to take because in Mark chapter 9, the hinge text of this whole passage is the transfiguration. And the transfiguration is this moment where the disciples see, maybe for the first time, the fuller extent of Jesus' glory. And the disciples realize that, oh my goodness, this is the full expression of Jesus' power. And they get excited, right? Because they've seen Jesus now in power and glory and authority. And they're getting taken up in this vision of Jesus' kingship, right? Finally, this is the Messiah who's about to come in and take the throne and take power and put Israel back on top. He's going to free the land from Roman occupation. And oh, by the way, we're the ones who are on the ground level of Jesus's ministry. So when Jesus finally comes into power, Jesus finally takes control, <clears throat> guess what? We're on the ground level. We get to come into power and authority too. And so this is the operating vision of the disciples kind of after the transfiguration when they see Jesus in power. But the rest of this text actually becomes a reality check. It becomes a reality check. And what Jesus does is not show how the disciples are going to come into authority and power. But actually what's going to happen when the kingdom of God comes in full is they're going to be pushed to the margins. They're going to be pushed to the margins. Yes, the kingdom of God is coming in power, but it's not going to look like they thought it would. Right? And Jesus begins to hint at the type of leaders, the type of disciples they're going to have to be when the kingdom of God begins to expand. And what Jesus is saying is they're going to have to be exilic disciples. They're going to have to be exiled disciples. And what that means is not disciples at the center of power, but they're going to have to be disciples who are very comfortable at the margins. At the margins. And when we think about that as the church in America, I think this is oftentimes where we have the biggest disconnect with Scripture. Because for so long, we've lived in a country in a culture that was a Christian majority. Even if you were not a believer, you operated by Christian beliefs and values. And yet we live in a culture today where I know you felt this, where Christian belief has swung more and more out of favor. And so we feel more and more as a church like we've been pushed to the cultural margins. And what's happened is you've watched churches who've responded to this kind of pushing to the margins by they try to power up that they're trying to re-earn their platform, they're trying to re-earn their power, they're trying to re-earn their respect, because in some sense they have this theology that, you know what? The true mission of Jesus was Christian power, was Christians being in control, was Christians having authority. But what Jesus is trying to say in Mark 9, to both the disciples and I think to us today, 
is that as the kingdom of God goes forward, as the kingdom of God expands, it has always called for a different type of disciple. Not a disciple who's clawing for power, even with the best of intentions. It doesn't call for a disciple who's clawing for power, but it's calling for a disciple who's comfortable on the margins of culture. It's calling for a disciple who lives and thinks of themselves as an exile. One who does not belong to this world, but is longing for a future true home. And so Jesus in Mark chapter 9 is giving us a glimpse of exilic discipleship, right? Discipleship not based on reestablishing control or dominance, but humbly waiting in the margins for a true and better home. And yes, we know that the power of God is coming, but as the transfiguration shows, it's not going to come in dominant victory, but it's going to come in glorious humility. It won't be generated from the center. It's going to be generated from the margins. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. What does an exilic disciple look like? What is Jesus trying to teach us? What wisdom is he trying to give the disciples? And what does it look like to become the kind of humble leaders that Jesus is calling us to be uh, in our culture? So three things. And the first thing is uh, that we need to have an expectation of discomfort. We need to have an expectation of discomfort. Go back to verse 30 with me. The text begins with Jesus and the disciples having a private conversation. This is not one of Jesus' public teachings. And Jesus shares with them the reality of his upcoming death. Right? And what does he say? He's going to be betrayed, killed, and he'll rise again. And one of the questions I've always had of Scripture is this next part. It says that the disciples did not understand and that they were afraid to ask him. And I've always wondered, Really? Really, even, even if you have no precedent for what Jesus is saying, which obviously you don't, it seems somewhat clear that Jesus is about to die. So is it really that you don't understand? And if you go to the very next passage, you see that they probably understood some of it, right? Because why would they be arguing about who's the greatest among them? Well, maybe there might be a leadership change, some, Jesus is about to go, and there might be a change in leadership, so who takes the reins? And then if you go back to verse 32, it notes that, yes, they didn't understand, but they were also afraid to ask him about it. It's almost as if you know, they didn't understand, but they had a sense, they had a deep suspicion of what Jesus might be talking about. And in reality, they just didn't like what they were hearing, right? They didn't understand because really they just didn't want to acknowledge that this might be the reality, right? It scared them. It would scare us if we heard our master, our teacher talking like this, right? Because what's the reality he's talking about? That the coming kingdom of God is going to come through death and sacrifice, not conquest and rule, right? It isn't going to be comfortable and triumphant. It's going to look like suffering. Later on in Mark 10, when James and John ask for the honor of sitting at Jesus' right and left in glory, Jesus says what? you don't know what you're asking for, right? Meaning what? You have this idea in your head that the kingdom's gonna come in power and that's gonna mean authority and ease for you, but what you're actually asking for is death, right? And so part of what Jesus is articulating here is that exilic discipleship or this discipleship at the margins means that we have an expectation of discomfort, Right? To follow Jesus, to be his hands and his feet, it does not promise ease and tranquility. In fact, Jesus promises it will be the opposite. 
right? Following him means discomfort. It means rejection. It means suffering. And I think it's disciples in this culture that we find ourselves in. That can be somewhat of a foreign idea because, and I, I would say this for myself, I think sometimes my practical theology, the things that I actually believe about God means that, you know what? If I'm a faithful disciple, if I'm a faithful follower of Jesus, that should mean I live a comfortable life, right? Because faithfulness should mean little or no pushback. Faithfulness should mean little or no suffering, right? Because if I'm walking the right path, if I'm doing the right things, if I'm saying the right things, shouldn't that mean that I shouldn't have to suffer, right? And that's what the disciples assumed, right? That when Jesus took power, what? It's going to be easy. We're going to have authority and power, but Jesus knew, right? The kingdom comes through death, right? And his disciples had to be ready for that, right? Following Jesus into the margins of culture is not an easy thing to do. But that's where the growth actually happens. Rodney Stark, who's a sociologist, he's not a Christian, uh, but he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity in which he tries to figure out how the Jesus movement took over uh, the Western world, how this worked. Uh, And he writes in one chapter about a certain trend that happened during a plague during the ancient church. And what happened during this plague was that the cultural power and the elite and the pagan priests all said, we need to survive this plague. So what ended up happening was everyone kind of turned in on themselves. They're like, all right, it's kind of survival of the fittest. We're going to take care of our own. We're not going to go near each other. We're all just going to kind of isolate and make sure that we survive the plague. And the Christians, who were social outcasts at the time, did something completely different. The Christians moved towards the sick. The Christians moved towards the dying. And what Rodney observes and identifies is that as the plague progressed, it was the cultural elites who had turned in on themselves that were dying. Meanwhile, the Christians were surviving. And so out of this plague, what ends up happening is this cultural shift where it's the Christians who are emerging as the cultural majority because they were the ones who banded together and kept each other alive, whereas the cultural elites had turned in on themselves and ultimately died. And so what allowed this transformation to take place? What were those Christians thinking? Well, it was a willingness at the margins of their culture. They were not in power but it was a willingness at the margins of their culture to walk as Jesus did, a willing to be uncomfortable and move towards others in that discomfort. So the first thing about being an exilic disciple is that we have an expectation of discomfort, but number two, it means that we have a servant posture. It means that we have a servant posture. And so the passage continues on, uh, into the disciples' argument about who's the greatest among them, right? And this is brought on by Jesus' transfiguration, right? Some of them saw it, some of them didn't. And so there's obviously a little bit of a stratification there. And, the, you know, Jesus is also hinting at his own death, so that probably prompted the discussion. Uh, but this argument has Jesus draw them all together. And to illustrate, what does he do? He pulls a child and he puts him in the middle of the circle. And why would Jesus put a child in the middle of the circle? Sometimes we see child and we're like, oh, it's, it's to teach innocence and, you know, the sweetness of a child. And that's not really Jesus's point. What Jesus is trying to show uh, is that children are the least in the social ladder in ancient Israel because children can't provide for themselves. 
They're a drain on resources. You have to take care of a child, and they can't necessarily provide and give back to you. And so until they can do that and climb the social ladder because then they can provide for their own family, children are the least in society. And so Jesus puts this child in the middle of the circle because they were the least of all. And what does Jesus say? Whoever would be first must be last and a servant of all. Right? Jesus is saying, well, you're arguing about who the greatest is, but greatness actually needs a different definition. Right? Success needs a different definition. Right? And notice how Jesus associates himself with the child. Right? To receive the child is to receive Jesus. To welcome Jesus is to welcome God. What's Jesus saying? Well, greatness is not defined by what you have or do in the eyes of others, but by your willingness to be last, to be a servant, to associate with the weak and the lowly. And greatness is defined by your ability to be a child, to be dependent on another who's greater than you, to be dependent on another who's greater than you, right? Greatness is found in weakness because when we are citizens of another kingdom, when this kingdom is not our home, but when we're citizens of another kingdom, that helps us understand our true worth and value. Uh, To illustrate this, uh, Flannery O'Connor, who's a great author, uh, she has a great collection of short stories, and one of them uh, is called Revelation, and it's one of my favorites, and it tells this story of a Mrs. Turpin, uh, and she's with her husband at this just normal doctor's appointment, and so she's sitting in the, the waiting room while they're waiting for the doctor to come and take the husband back, and she's just having a grand old time judging everybody in the room. She's just going person by person by person. And at one point, she's like, you know what? God just gave me a little bit of everything, and I am so thankful. I am not like them. And at one point, her southern passive aggressiveness has uh, ticked off a teen on the other side of the room. And this teen gets up out of her chair, runs over, and starts to choke Mrs. Turpin, saying, and I quote, go to hell, you warthog which obviously rattles Mrs. Turpin's confidence in herself. (laughs) And this story ends, it's probably about a page and a half of her trying to figure out, because obviously this quote struck her, and it says that there was no denial in her, which means she's wrestling with the fact that this might be true. At the end of the story, there's this revelation. There's this vision that she sees. And what she watches is all these people who she judged in this waiting room, They're walking into heaven in this heavenly processional. And guess who's last? Herself. And what she realizes in this story is that all along she believed that the proper order of things in this world put her up front. But what she realizes is that her life was of no more worth or value than everyone else in whom she was judging. She was just like them. And exilic disciples live and understand this fact, that our lives are not more worthy. They are not more special than another. And that it is by Christ and by Christ alone that we have been welcomed into the kingdom of God. We, friends, by our nature, are dependent on the greatness of another. We derive our worth, 
We derive our value based on another. And sometimes it takes the margins to remind us of that, that we are called to embody a Savior who, being God himself, having all authority and glory in heaven, emptied himself and made himself nothing. Right? He became a servant of all. Right? And what the disciples were being taught, that it wasn't their skill, it wasn't their merit that earned them greatness. What? They were great because they followed someone great. They had given their lives to someone great. Right? They were only considered great because Christ had claimed them as his own. And so if we want to be faithful disciples on the margins, we want to be faithful disciples in our culture, it can't look like us trying to earn our greatness on our own. Rather, it's going to look like servanthood, right? When we understand that we ourselves are not worthy and we make ourselves less, right? Friends, we recognize that our sin ought to put us at the back of the line, right? And so out of that, we love and serve others, not with the vision that these people are less than us, but actually that they're ahead of us. Right? Sometimes when we think about service, we think about serving people who are below us. But actually, the servant posture is serving people who we view in our minds because we understand our worth and value. We see them ahead of us. That's what being a servant looks like. So, expectation of discomfort, a servant posture, and finally, seeking a kingdom and not building our own. Seeking a kingdom and not building our own. Verse 38, John speaks up in this conversation, and he claims that, you know what? I saw someone casting out demons in Jesus' name, and he asked Jesus the question, Jesus, should I stop him? Because this man hasn't been following us around. He's been off doing his own thing, and yet he's casting out demons in your name. Should I stop him because he's not following us? And what does Jesus say? Well, of course don't stop him, right? He's glorifying me. Why, why should you stop that? And it raises an interesting issue in the disciples' hearts, right? Because the disciples mean well. Obviously, they see somebody who's operating outside of Jesus' own ministry, and they're wondering if they should stop him. But in reality, you can see the selfishness behind the disciples' request, right? It's like John is saying without saying, well, aren't we the ones who get to do things in your name? Right? Aren't we the ones that you've entrusted the responsibility to? right? Aren't we the ones who get to build your future kingdom, right? This question of John is not about advancing Jesus' ministry, but it's about self-kingdom building, right? Because if others get to do all this stuff that we get to do, right, then it means we're less special, right? It means we don't own this ministry, right? It, it means that the kingdom actually isn't built around us, right? And if we're honest, I think we all we all understand that, right? We want to build our kingdoms, right? We want to be in the center of our kingdom. And yes, we might use Christ as our platform for it, but at the end of the day, we want our credit. We want our attention. We want our glory, right? And so part of being left on the margins, part of what we have to understand and wrestle with as a church is that we're always going to want that power and that control. We're always going to want it to revolve around us, right? John saw someone doing good work for the kingdom of God, and he pointed it out with a heart of selfishness. Lord, can we stop him so that we can remain relevant? Right? And what Jesus points out is no. Right? Rather than building your own kingdom, being 
obsessed with building your own status and platform, exilic disciples recognized that they were not made for this world, but they look for a coming kingdom. They look for a coming kingdom. And so rather than try to build up relevance and power, disciples are patient people. Disciples are patient people, and they wait, and they serve unto a different kingdom. See, where John messed up was that he got his eyes locked in on his platform, right? He had a bunch of people behind him following him, right? In his mind, he had a kingdom. He had a following. He had a future leadership role in the kingdom of God. And what he missed was that through this unknown man that he was watching, right, the true kingdom was being glorified. And he ought to have celebrated that. To give you an example, uh, when we were in Mexico on the men's mix men's Mexico mission trip, uh, got to have a lot of conversations with our mission partner, Todd Luke. And I can't say enough uh, good things about the man, but uh, one of the things that stood out to me about Todd in his ministry in Mexico was how he always accredited the ministry and the mission to the native workers in Mexico, to the point where he would talk about their leadership and their mission so much, it kind of led to the question of, well, Todd, what do you do? Like, what's your role? And that's how we think, isn't it? That we somehow have to justify our worth. We somehow have to justify our kingdom. Otherwise, we lose it. But what I loved about Todd was his humility. See, here was the kingdom of God advancing. And what Todd didn't need to do on this trip is prove to us that he was in charge. That proved to us that this is my mission and here I want to impress you with what I've done. But rather, here was a servant who was simply seeing this is where the kingdom of God is advancing and let me throw all of my efforts in and I don't care if you think if I'm in charge or not. Right? Because it's all about seeking a true and better kingdom, not building our own. Right? It's simply noticing where God is moving and showing up and serving. Whether you're in charge, whether you're in the lead, whether you get the credit, or not, right? As exilic disciples, this becomes our call, right? Are we building our own kingdom, or are we taking a truly humble posture? One of the axioms that we say around here is that, you know, it's amazing what you can get done when you don't care about who gets the credit. That is the call of an exilic disciple, right? As the kingdom expands, however it expands, in whatever way it does, we celebrate because we are looking for a true and better kingdom to come. And we're not basing our hope in building a kingdom for ourselves right now. Uh, I'll close with this. Some of you know uh, for the last few months that I've been training to run a triathlon. Uh, and one of the things that I've realized is that there's a lot of learning along the way when you try to run a triathlon for the first time, and uh, one of the things that I've learned is it doesn't really matter how long you train or how well you train, is that the day of the race will come, and it will still hurt and stink to run the race. Uh, You will still be tired, your legs will still hurt, and it's still not fun uh, to run the race. No matter how hard you've trained, no matter how well you've trained, you will still suffer on race day. And it's changed my mindset, right? Because now instead of training to take away all the pain on race day, what I'm doing is now I'm training to suffer well. I'm training to suffer well. You're laughing because you know it's true. Right? You're training so that when your legs get heavy, you know what that feels like. 
You're training so that when you realize you're getting hungry, you know when you need to stop and take a break and get something to eat. You're training so that you have a strategy so that when things hurt, when things go south, you know what it feels like and that you've done it before. You're training to suffer well. And friends, what Jesus is saying in Mark chapter 9 is that we are training as disciples to suffer well. We're training so that when we are in the margins of culture, when we're loving a world that doesn't seem to always love us back, in our discomfort, in our servanthood, when our ambitions are not at the focal point, we're training to suffer well because we long for a future kingdom that is greater than anything on this earth. And so friends, as we live and we love at the margins, as more and more God pushes us out there, Lord, I pray that we would be reminded of the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the kingdom of God, what we long for, what we wait for, and that we would live our lives unto that end. Let me pray for us. God, you are good and you are faithful. And sometimes words like this are hard to hear because it reminds us that you don't promise an easy life. But there will be difficulty and challenge, but it is worth it because of the weight of glory that is coming that is beyond all comprehension. And so, Lord, I pray today as we think about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be uncomfortable what it means to be a servant, what it means to look for a kingdom and not build our own, Lord, that you would move our hearts, that you would humble us, that you would shape us into the kind of leaders and disciples that you envision taking your gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, would you make us a caring and humble people, not debating on who's the greatest, not trying to build our own kingdom, but longing for a kingdom to come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.